Hello friends, today's episode is absolutely captivating. Dr. Angie Mickle, Dean and Associate Professor of the School of Nursing, shares her story of suffering, loss, and hope. I recommend you grab your tissues because her story will make you cry. But she is not without hope. In the midst of trials, Angie's faith is strengthened and she is an encouragement to others. Welcome to the Cedarville Stories Podcast. My guest today is a modern living Job who has dealt with some significant issues in her life and is here today to share her stories on the Cedarville Stories podcast. Her name is Dr. Angie Mickle. She is the Dean of the School of Nursing at Cedarville. Angie, how long have you been at Cedarville? Um, I started adjunct teaching in 2005 and I became full-time in 2008. 2008. And when did you become Dean of the School of Nursing? Um, I was appointed interim dean in 2014. What changes have you seen uh, in in your, what now, uh, six years as dean? Yes, so I'm in my sixth year, and the changes in, in general are that there has been um, more unity in the School of Nursing. Um, we've been bringing down the silos within the School of Nursing and then yeah. across campus. Yeah. Um, there is more collegiality, and just um, we have also partnered and we're collaborating with the School of Pharmacy, and um, right this morning, we collaborated with social work. We had a meeting, and we're collaborating with other divisions across campus. So I mean, that's just imperative that you guys do, especially as you think about how how healthcare is moved or moving. Mm. I mean, that's what healthcare is about: is the collaboration between doctors, nurses, probably social work as well. Is that right? That's correct. All the professionals at the table now for for the best patient outcomes. And so, um, if we're doing that in the workplace, we need to do it in the educational place as well. Did you ever envision yourself being a dean of a school at a university? No, I never aspired to do this. Um, I thought I would teach one day when I was old and retired from nursing, but I never aspired um, to even be at Cedarville University. I feel like this has just really been all God-led. Are you from this area? I'm from Xenia, Ohio. So you haven't moved far from home, and your first jobs, they were in nursing then? So, yes. So I didn't have money um, out of high school to go to college. So I joined the military and I spent uh, seven years away from Ohio, from Xenia, Ohio. Never thought I'd really come back. Um, and then I. I understand be- that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I became a nurse in North Carolina, and the military is responsible for my educational journey. And then um, came back in 93 and really have had a, an amazing professional career yeah. um, with nursing. And then. Um, yeah, then God just opened up doors and brought me to Cedarville University. Why did you move back from North Carolina? Um, I moved back because I had a two-year-old daughter, me and my husband, um, were in North Carolina. We're both from Xenia. And while we didn't have kids, it was fine to be away. But as soon as um, we had a daughter and then we started um, celebrating milestones, walking and talking and sure. mama, dada, there just was no family. So we just really wanted to come back to family um, to raise our kids. And then also my father um, visited me and he wasn't breathing well. So I thought I need to come spend time with my dad. Wow. You're really a family person, aren't you? Yes. Yes. So how many children do you guys have? Um, we have four children. And um, the oldest is 28 and the youngest is 18. And wow. then a, two girls and um, two boys. So the college-age students, where do they go to college? Okay, so um, my oldest daughter uh, graduated from Cedarville in 2014 with a sociology degree, and she actually is back in school here now, and she's currently a nursing major. She's going to graduate in May. She's a three-year student, an adult student, because she came back to be a nurse 
because she missed that the first time around. Okay. How could she miss that in your family? <laughs> well, you know, they. I didn't force anybody to be a nurse. Um, and so she saw it, and she thought that's what she didn't want. But after she became an adult and started having kids, she re- recognized that that's what she wanted. That's neat. Now, are you also in the National Guard? I am. Yes, sir. What do you – What do you, you don't have to call me sir. <laughs> no, you can call me Mark. Really, please. So um, – what do you do in the National Guard? So um, I just got promoted to major, and I'm a nurse practitioner, a provider in the National Guard, and I am the um, chief nurse administrator at Rickenbacker for the 121st Med Group. And wow. um, I was in the military for 10 years, right out of high school. And then um, after I had my daughter, I recognized that I would not want to be deployed and leave my children. So I raised my family, and then I went back in um, in 2014, and I'm going to do my I got six years left. I need to do 10 years. <laughs> okay. So I remember a few years ago, you guys were almost deployed to, was it a hurricane yes. situation? Mm-hmm. So our mission is um, with the state, the National Guard is state first and then federal. And then our mission is called HERF Homeland Emergency Response Force. Okay. So we have a whole hospital um, tent system set up that we can respond to any uh natural or man-made disaster and um, start care. We have to deploy within six hours and we can be there within 12 hours and we can set up in 90 minutes and start seeing patients in like 95 minutes. Uh, that's fabulous. Now, I, just for a point of reference, um, since you're a major and you're a doctor, do I need to call you Dr. Mickle or should I just salute or how do I reference you in this podcast? Well, in this podcast, um, I'm just Angie. I, I really am just Angie and a child of God. And um my favorite title is Gigi because I'm a grandmother. You are. And I can tell it means a lot just right there. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Okay. So, uh, you know, we've had fun at, at the outset here, but uh, I do want to dive into um, probably um, a very sensitive and delicate situation and time, timeline for you because I remember it well. On January 7th of last year, 2019, you underwent brain surgery. You had a tumor in your, in your head. Uh, there were many aspects of this uh, situation that I find fascinating. One being, um, I believe you were in your office the morning of the surgery doing work. Is that correct? That is correct. <clears throat> Why would anyone do that? I don't know. But did you also drive yourself to the hospital? I did. Yes, I did. Is that normal? Probably not normal, but um, that's just how I'm wired. <laughs> You obviously, even going into the brain surgery, you knew it was coming, um, you had a piece about the situation. So walk us through the moment you got the diagnosis to the moment the surgery is over. Okay. And, and, and leave it there. We'll get to other things later. Okay. So um, the I woke up October 29th with uh, the first headache that I'd really ever had in my life. In 2019? In 20. 19, correct. Okay. I have to think about that. Yes. So, yes, I woke up with a headache in 2019 about 3 o'clock in the morning, and um, that was a Sunday morning going into a Monday, and I'd really never had a headache or woke up with a headache before. And so I took some Tylenol, went back to sleep, and then I woke up to get ready for work to the alarm, and I still had a headache Monday morning, which was unusual. So that headache um, was n- well, I'd really never had a headache, so I didn't know what a normal headache was, but that <laughs> headache just wouldn't get better. And every day that week, it progressively got worse. And um, I kept coming to work, and I kept doing seeing patients and doing everything. And then um, I finally went to the 
my family doctor on Friday of that week and said, I have a really bad headache and I think I need a CAT scan. And he did not think I needed that. He said, your neuro exam's solid and I think you're just stressed out. And um, I said, oh, okay. So he um, said, let's see how you do this weekend. Over the weekend, I had military, I had a military ball. Um, I went and did the military stuff, but I couldn't drive home from Columbus um, because my headache was so bad. And so I text him actually and said I really need to get a CAT scan it's getting worse and then so Monday November 5th during the day um, the CAT scan got scheduled I had my CAT scan at 5 p.m. and he called me at 7 p.m. to tell me that I had a brain tumor and um, I just remember one being relieved because I knew that something was wrong and two just immediately feeling like a piece and a piece because the initial diagnosis was um, terminal. So his the first diagnosis that I got on the phone was that I had an astrocytoma, and that I I knew that that's not survivable. And so I wow. just and, and that was my um, by the way my thirty second wedding anniversary. <laughs> wow, November happy 5th. anniversary! Yeah. Wow. So yeah, so I drove home and I told my husband um, that we we needed to drive me to the pharmacy to get some medicine to get the swelling down in my head, and we just had a lot to talk about. So let's let's unpack that a little bit. Okay. I mean, were were you emotional? Was your husband emotional? How did that conversation go? So I just really felt at peace. I I know that um, when I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm not going to have eternal death. I have eternal life, and so I am really at peace with that. And so. Um, my immediate concern was for everyone else, um, for how my husband was going to take this, how we would talk to our children about it. And um, I, I immediately just wanted to uh, make sure that everyone that I know would be with me in heaven one day. Right. And that was, that was really where uh, my thoughts were. And uh, we decided not to tell my kids that night um, until I had some more studies. I knew I was going to the neurosurgeon the next morning. And um, so that's what we did. And and so then you can just see God um, in everything that ha- occurred. So I w- went to sleep that night. I was at peace. I said my prayers at night, went to sleep, woke up the next morning and seen the neurosurgeon who had um, basically good news the night before you think you have an astrocytoma. And he said, yes, you have a big tumor, but I think it is a meningioma and it could or could not be terminal. And we won't know until you have a surgery. And so um, let's plan from here. Okay, let's pause that part of the story. So (laughs) did your family ever think that you were keeping information from them? Like you knew this was happening and you kept it from us? They, yes, they were angry that I kept the first information from them. And then as we were moving forward, um, he did say that uh, this was urgent but not emergent and that we should spend the holidays together and enjoy our family time together and have the surgery immediately after the new year. So that was November 6th, and the surgery was that day scheduled for January 7th. And I was really excited about the holidays and spending time with the family and um they thought because I was so at peace with all that, that I was really not going to survive this. And I just wasn't telling them. I wasn't being truthful when in fact, I really didn't know. So you, you get the diagnosis, you talk to your husband, you guys decide to wait till after the holidays. Did that make your holiday time with your family even more special or meaningful to you? Oh, oh, for sure. Um, we had, for some reason, never even had a generated a family photograph. And so we had family photographs made. We took a family vacation. Um, we had bake day. Everything 
was more special. And I've always wanted our whole family to put up the Christmas tree. And um, that's never happened. And everybody came over to do that, including my mother-in-law. Like, just everything was just really celebrated and exaggerated. Um, and it was so special. And it was exaggerated because they knew now that this, or they still hadn't known they, the information? I told them that we, they knew about the, the tumor. They knew I was having a surgery. They thought that I was not telling them something because yeah. I was so at peace with it. But 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 the the holiday celebration they really stepped up their game because <laughs> they knew the information that they, could be serious. Correct. Right. They did step up their game. And um, this is one of the pinnacles. Um, my husband ha- owns his own business, and we went to have our annual Christmas dinner celebration. And they asked me at Christmas at dinner what I would want for Christmas gift. And I said, I would really like everybody to attend church. And this is a lot of... Um, there's a lot of non-believers that was at that dinner, and um, the next Sunday morning, they all joined me in church, and they all heard the gospel. Wow. The power of love will do great things. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so now you're, you're through Christmas, January 7th, you're working, you decide you better go to the hospital, have a brain surgery. A really great idea, Angie. And um, so you, how long was the surgery? So the surgery was supposed to be about five or six hours, but uh, it turned out to take about nine. Um, when uh, Dr. Booz did the surgery at Kettering um, Medical Center, he when he got in there, um, the tumor was about four and a half centimeters, but it had grown a couple little finger projections, and they'd wrapped around um, mm. the base of my spine, uh, the firm and magnum area, and they were very vasculature. And so when he got in there, he was pulling that away slowly, but it started bleeding a little bit. And so mm. he had to stop. He did have to leave a little bit of tumor behind. And he, yeah, we all know that. But he got most of it out. And so he had to stop and then um, stop the surgery and uh, didn't get all that he wanted to get. Okay. And uh, when did you get the news that it was um, not a situation that would lead to immediate death. Immediate death. So um, I came out of surgery. I, I don't remember a lot of it, but um, it was supposed to be three days in the hospital. I remember kind of waking up and then the tumor um, tissue actually had to go to pathology. And I'd say about the day of the third morning, he said that it was uh, benign. Um, they staged it and they said that, of course, what was left there could grow back. But um, in general... He was very amazed because most uh, tumors like mine that grow finger-like projections are usually terminal, and they're they're really? rarely ever benign. Well, praise the Lord for mm-hmm. that. We're excited. So through this process, um, probably like only Angie Mickle would do, you named your tumor something. What did you name your tumor? <laughs> That's true. Um, I named my tumor Joy, and that is because... Um, uh, so I, I immediately wanted to find a way to witness to people. And so um, by showing my friends and family and uh, my students here at the university um, pictures of my tumor, I was able to show them um, how much vascular loss I had inside my head. But God was still sovereign. And they told the doctors told me this tumor had been growing for like 15 or 20 years. And that I had accomplished, been able to accomplish school and so much with this tumor and just no knowledge that it was there. And he was just taking care of everything. And so um, I believed that he was using this as another way for me to minister to people. So I was kind of praying to him and asking him what he wanted me to do with this. And he said, I felt like he wanted me to name the tumor Joy, um, which is fun because in James, um, 
1, 2 through 4, there is a verse that says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet uh, trials and tribulations of various kinds, you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that um, when you when your t- faith is tested and you stand with um, joy and you stand in his strength, then you're able to show the world that he is your strength. And we're going to talk about that without going in- into other parts of your story, how did this situation allow you to share joy and the love of Christ? Well, I was able to um, sh- t- to uh, tell everybody about my tumor. I had pictures, really good pictures, that of vascular studies, and really the whole right side of my brain um, has just a a really limited blood supply when you look at a picture of how much is on the left and how much we're supposed to have, and to think that, that I'm this solid. Um, I'm a little forgetful, but I've been like that my whole life, so maybe it's tumor-related. I don't know. But um, You should claim it. <laughs> but um, with that being said, um, pretty solid, pretty knowledgeable, um, love people, love everything. I love life, and I'm so active. And so for all that to be the way that it is with this tumor that had been growing inside my head, I just felt like God really wanted me to use this to, to reach out to people and say that he's got this. He's got us. Um, and that we as Christians are going to face trials and tribulations, and we have to encounter that and still um, know that he's got it. we just got to be strong in the Lord. It's a, it's a great lesson to learn that because God always does have it. He's yeah, he the creator of, the, of everything, and we can trust him. So let's let's advance into your journey because... If that was not enough, there's another uh, stage in this story, and that is three days after you are you've finished with your your surgery, you have a stroke. That's correct. So I remember eating some French fries and half of a cheeseburger, and it tastes really good. And my best friend and my daughter was in my room. And at the end of that meal, um, I started feeling funny inside my head. <laughs> And oh, it was boy. really weird. And it wasn't like the headache, but it was just a very different feeling. And I started to tell them about it, and they didn't really believe me. Like, I was really just getting ready to go home. I was supposed to be discharged. So I was telling them, oh, I have this headache. And they're like, no. So then finally my my best friend um, said, can you describe it? She's a nurse too. So I'm describing it. And then they said, it's just the steroids making you emotional because I started crying because nobody believed me or I felt like nobody believed me. So when I started crying and I was really adamant about not feeling well, um, my best friend went out and got the nurse and the, uh, the charge nurse and they came back in. And then the nurse went out and got the surgeon and the surgeon ordered a um, CAT scan for me to go have another study. So I went and had the study, and during the study, um, I'd had several studies leading up to this, several MRIs and a lot of dye injected into my body, and this time it was very different. And the minute that the dye went in, I had pain everywhere um, Mm. in every single part of my body, and that had never happened before. So when I went back to the room, I just felt like I knew something wasn't right. And um, the radiologist uh, read the study as negative. And my Dr. Boos came in, and I explained to him what I was feeling and how bad I felt from the dye. And he told me to hang on a minute. He went out, and he read the study himself. And he came back in the room, and he told my husband that I was having a stroke. Wow. And so um, I had two kinds of stroke. I was bleeding a little bit, and I had a, a ischemic stroke. So all the blood – I already had limited blood flow, but all the blood flow wasn't getting to the other side of my – the left side of my brain that has good blood flow. 
So there was two really big things going on. And then I kind of um, remember just being rushed down the hallway back to the ICU, and I really lost about three or so days. Like, I don't remember those, which wow. is just protective, I'm sure, right? Right, right. <laughs> right. Wow, that's a that's an emotional roller coaster, not just for you, for my family. actually for, for your family. Yeah, my family. I mean, it's one thing to survive brain tumor surgery, but now a stroke mm-hmm. and really the uncertainty of will my wife or will my mom be right ever again? Right, because I was pretty solid. I felt like I had been cleared from physical therapy, cleared to go home. Um, everything was solid. And then all of a sudden I had the stroke. And when yeah. I came out of it, I was having um, my immediate, I was having some deficits. And I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was 20, uh, 2012. I was sure it was 2012. And I didn't know my left and right. I'm like, I came out of the stroke with a few deficits that have resolved. But today there are no deficits. There are no deficits. And I was um, walking into the wall to the left. When I first got up, I had to go back into physical therapy. And yeah. So um, your health today is good? My health today is solid. I ended up staying in the hospital for 11 days. Um, stayed, I recovered over three months, and I came back to the university July 1st. Okay. You know, in... In researching and talking with you and hearing your story before the podcast, you know, one thought that came to my mind is, I wonder if Angie ever felt like Job, you know, because there's trial or after trial after trial. Did you ever have a thought like that? So, um, absolutely. So not because of the tumor or not because of the stroke. Everything was still really solid. But um, we had another really big trial um, attack our family on February 5th. And Correct. so a, a very positive thing through all this is I have um, four grandchildren mm. um, during all this time. And um, I got closer to those children because of being off of work. And I had worked so much that I, did, I had limited time to spend with them. So all this time I was off work, I got time to be really, to get really close to them through the holiday. And it was just a time of real bonding. And so I have, uh, I had a um, grandson named um, Rowan and uh, mm-hmm. baby Rowan was um, uh, <laughs> seven months old. Um, when on February 4th, I was holding him all day. And on you were February, babysitting him, right? So my son was babysitting him at my house, and I was okay. recovering. And um, my son was babysitting three of the four children, actually. And I was home recovering. And um, so uh, we was getting ready to take a nap, and baby Rowan, my son brought baby Rowan to me, and he was not breathing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this is February 5th, so it's less than a month from my surgery. And up until that very minute, I was so solid. I, I felt so solid with God. And um, But the minute that I started doing CPR on my grandson and calling for 911 and telling everybody what to do to uh, approach this emergency, I immediately started um, calling out to the Lord and just kind of like, you know, why are you letting so much bad stuff happen to one family? And those are the kinds of right. questions I had for the Lord immediately. Um, and I just was really angry that my family was going to encounter another tragedy. And um, and I pretty much knew that my uh, grandson was dead. We, I was doing um, compressions, and there was a little bit of hope there. But I knew when I tried to give him breaths and that that his that he was dead. I knew that. Um, mm. But what um, I didn't know was how I was going to ever be able to tell my daughter that her 
son had died at my home. Yeah. Yeah, so it was really tough. Um, so just going through that, I have a picture of, of Jesus hanging in my bathroom. So after the squad come and they took him from me and they took over care, I just went into my bathroom and I sat on the bathroom floor and I just really looked up that picture and just really cried out to Jesus mm. and just said, you know, what in the world are you doing, Lord? Right. <laughs> you know, how much can one person take? So, um, yeah, it was a, a pretty big day. How did... How how was that conversation with your daughter, that first conversation? So, um, so my daughter was in is in nursing school, and she was actually at clinical at Children's Medical Center when that occurred. And my husband had gotten a hold of her, and um, he didn't tell her that the baby was dead. He just said, "Baby Rowan stopped breathing, and they're taking you to the hospital." So, um, I knew that she was headed to Grimmore Hospital. Um, and I knew that what she was about to encounter and I knew that I needed to pull myself together and I needed to get to the hospital to help her. So, um, I was in my bathroom, um, and a couple of people from the university came over and it's just weird how God orchestrated them to know that they needed to get to my house. It was just really strange. They heard somebody heard a 911 call to my residence and they oh, thought it was me. You. And so Suzanne Lefevre called me and said, yeah. what's going on? And I'm like, you're not going to believe, but I just did CPR on my grandson. And so literally uh, Suzanne and Kim Higginbotham, um, who are just two of my favorite people, uh, both my assistant deans got to my house in like no time, and they just really saw me broken um, and crying and yelling at the Lord, and they just kind of helped me pull it together and get ready to go to the hospital. And that all happened in like 30 minutes. And then on the way to the hospital was my first conversation with my daughter. And I don't know if she called our phone or we called hers, but she was sitting at a light on the way to the hospital, and we were in the country on the way to the hospital and our cars. And she said, um, Mom, he's going to be okay, right? They're going to just be able to resuscitate him. And it was really hard because I knew I didn't want to give her false hope. And so I said, um, Alexis, I don't think so. I don't think that baby Rowan's going to be okay. Um, mm. I don't think he's going to breathe again. And she, then I was worried about her safety. Right. Um, and then um, she just really hung up. She just really hung up. And so then I really didn't know what I was going to encounter at the hospital. And my mind was everywhere. And I was just talking to God and, um, thinking through like like i i'm an er nurse for by history for like 20 years so i knew that we had to make a lot of decisions and i just knew what i was going to walk into was going to be utter chaos right. and awful and but when i got to the hospital and i walked into the hospital um god's presence was right there from the second i walked in and it was just amazing it was just really amazing how did you see it so um so first of all um everybody that took care of my uh, my grandson were my friends and family. I'd worked with them forever. The ER doctor, I'd been at his wedding. Oh, yeah. So I, I truly knew intimately all the people that were taking care of my grandson. And then um, Nathan Chrisman is a, a pastor at Nazarene Church, and that's where my daughter attends. And she he was there, and I watched him grow up. And I walked into a room that uh, they had stopped uh, trying to resuscitate my grandson, and um, baby Rowan was laying uh, beautifully on a gurney, and Nathan was dedicating him to the Lord. And just there was a service going on with all the hospital personnel and all the family in the room. And God was just in the middle of that, and everybody was being ministered to. And it was so much different than anything I'd ever experienced or expected. Yeah. What a painful year. Matter of fact, what a painful month or month and a half in your life how has god used these 
difficulties in your life that brings you closer to him and encourages you or motivates you to serve him fully? Well, there, there, there's just a million things. And I have, I am really a changed person. Like everything I look at now is through a different lens. And I know that God has brought me through all that. But one of my grad students sent me a book in the mail um, that was authored by Dr. Mark Vrogrop, which oh, coincidentally yeah. um, is somebody that I admire and have seen in chapel here and stuff. And the book name of the book was Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. Mm-hmm. And um, in reading that book, the, there was a little note with it that said that, that the student had encountered some difficult trials in her life, and this book had really helped her, and she thought it would be help for me. So, of course, I'm just looking for anything. And so I read that book, and I couldn't put it down. And it it is really where I learned about um, how to lament. And I don't I had never known that before, and I didn't really understand Job and or songs of deep sorrow. I just didn't understand that. and or that God, I know that God brings us, and I knew through joy and the uh, tumor and everything that he, there's trials and tribulations and he he comforts us in them but um i was solid in all that until that happened to my grandson and then i too was very angry with him but for a short time like why did he let this happen and i learned that um that is when we are in our deepest darkest time in our life is when he carries us the most and he's giving us the most mercy mm. and um he expects us to lament and he wants to learn about that so i have been really trying to help my family with that teach people about it and then just tell my story and so um he has really grown my faith and brought me through this process and given me strength um even at the hospital um at we were all in a room together and um the county coroner was praying for us and i was still sobbing um because i just knew that i had to be the mom, be yeah. the mom to my daughter who lost a son. And I didn't know how I was going to do that. And um, as I was sobbing and, and listening to uh, to the prayer from Dr. Sherritt, I kind of peeked up and on the wall, there was a big stencil of a, of a Bible verse. And it was 2 Timothy 4.17. And um, it said, but the Lord stood with me and gave me strength. And strength was really big on the wall. And um, I just, at that moment, just said, that's what I need right now, Lord. I need your strength. And I asked for it, and he just gave it to me. Mm. And literally from that moment on, he's just sustained me with his strength. Thank, thanks for sharing. Um, it's just been over, just over a year uh, from the time we we're recording this podcast to when it's airing. Um, how are you? How are, how's your family today? So uh, my family today is is doing remarkably well. Um, the anniversary coming up upon February fifth uh, was very difficult for my family, and in just in in getting ready for that, gearing up for that, several things um, have happened. Um, one being that my daughter, who is the senior nursing student, um, the Lord has blessed her with another baby, and she's pregnant oh, with a neat. baby girl, and she's due April fifteenth. Oh really? She's due April fifteenth. Oh, a... and so um, yeah, so we're really excited. So she, ha- she, the Lord has blessed us with another child, and I almost feel like that I mean, He gives and He takes. And um, he, uh, my granddaughter just had um, flu A pneumonia and a, u- a urinary tract infection, and she was admitted to Children's um, over the weekend. And I feel like that the Lord is saying, 
and and she's done well. She got discharged. Everything is so solid. And I think that he is just saying to our family and to my daughter, whose faith is so solid, by the way, um, speaking of somebody with solid faith, she is amazing. Um, she, I think the Lord was just saying, look, I've got this, right? Because that was a little scary for them to have to take one of their children to the hospital and um, sick with the flu and be admitted yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So. Your story is so uh, tragic, tr- so sad, and so encouraging all the same. So I thank you for sharing uh, those experiences and reliving them with, with us. Um, I want to ask you one final question before we, we end the podcast, and I want to bring it back into to Cedarville. Um, how has all those experiences helped you in the classroom, as a professor, as a leader, and how did Cedarville um, help you through this process? Like two-part question. So absolutely. So I have put together. Um, I feel like God brought me through all of this because He wants me to use it as my ministry, like a, as stories to encourage people and to. Uh, when I share my story with students. Every time at the end of it, they'll come and they'll tell me some personal things and they'll say, I really needed to hear that right now because the Lord is helping me walk through something or I was starting to lose faith in the Lord and you know now I can read this book or whatever. So I, I have used it to um, lead the School of Nursing. Um, I have used it to lead my faculty. Um, and this year, the, the concept that we're leading the School of Nursing with is faith because he has really grown my faith this past over the past year, my faith and my family's faith. And um, I think that he, his intention is for us to all grow in faith every day. Um, And so that's been big. When I reflect back on um, my journey, even to coming to Cedarville, um, truly, when I first started here, I'm not an alum. I didn't feel like I fit in. I just felt led here. I used to walk around the lake and sometimes even cry and just say, Lord, why do you have me here? And I can look back over all of it. And I truly believe that he... He knew that joy was in my head, and he it was all being orchestrated because the support, the the um, prayer support, and the communal support, and everybody around me at the at the right time to just help me through that that three months, um, and then just all this, the recovery, everything that we're going through. Um, I believe that he surrounded me with the Cedarville family for a purpose, and he intended for me to be the dean at mm-hmm. this time. And I really am. I never aspired to be the dean, and I am the least of these. Like, he does take the least qualified mm-hmm. and helps um, equip you to get his will done. Well, there's a lot of thoughts going through my mind. One is, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So thank you for not just learning about faith, but embracing that and, and trusting God. And then, two, thank you for your leadership with the School of Nursing. The, the School of Nursing has a great reputation for producing uh, nurses who really care and minister to people. I hear it all the time when I'm out in the, in the region, so thank you for that. And most of all, just thank you for your friendship and then just being transparent and honest today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by today's episode, share it with a friend. Please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And connect with us at Cedarville on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory.